I am Sergio Brodsky, and I'm a brand and foresight strategist. And I'm Jazz Giuliani, the editor of Marketing Mag. Welcome to Futurecast, the podcast where we talk with professional futurists, renowned academics, and high-profile business leaders from around the world. In this series, we think about the future so that we can meaningfully change the present. The time is now. Join us for better futures. Welcome back to Futurecast. So today we have a very special final episode of the series and Sergio and I are just going to be recapping all of our favorite moments and the amazing guests that we spoke to. So hello, Sergio. The end of the series is here. Hello, Jazz. Yes, it's, uh, well, it is the end of the present, the beginning of the future. What is it? That's so true. That's so true. And, you know, it's, it's a little bit sad to come to the end of this, um, this series, but at the same time, we've both learned so many things and it's been an incredible experience. You know, when you first came to me with this idea, I'll admit that I was very new to the discipline, I suppose, of future studies and strategic foresight. And I was thinking of it from a really marketing business lens, which it absolutely applies to, but we went so much deeper than that in this series. And, you know, I'd love to hear from you what, what you feel, what surprised you or what you feel you learned during this time. Oh, Jess, there is so much, so much that to, to be said about the learnings from uh, Futurecast. But I think that putting ourselves in the line of fire and uh, making all this happen was was the, the the biggest learning. And you know, as we as we say about foresight, which is very different from forecasting, because when you forecast something, you collect data, you collect evidences from the past, you extrapolate, and you try to you know project something to the future. But you project something. You don't project yourself. I think that by getting into the trenches of what the future might be and how we may be able to drive it has been the biggest learning for me, even though I've, you know, I've participated in several different types of projects involving strategic foresight with corporate organizations or governments and, and, and others. I feel that this was pretty much uh, an attempt of not just writing the manifesto, but being the manifesto. And uh, that was a very unique thing for me. So thank you for allowing me to come to you with a a crazy idea and dare to challenge the minds of marketers in Australia and beyond. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that we, we've spoken to so many interesting people and you're so right. It sort of put us in the role of active creators or being part of that, that manifesto, as you said. And, you know, we've spoken with people from academics to, you know, people in, in business, in marketing, in, we've spoken to artists and policy makers and people from all walks of life from different countries. We've been recording this at, you know, for those who don't know, 10 p.m. at night sometimes speaking <laughs> to someone in in Pakistan or the U.S. or wherever. And or the Netherlands or the Netherlands. so much more, yes. <laughs> it's been absolutely incredible. So what we want to do in this episode is just give everyone a little taste of the amazing people that we've spoken to because it really has been enriched by the the kinds of people that we've spoken to and the ideas that they've had and so we've sort of had it from all angles we've we've sort of discussed the problem and unpacked what is actually going on and this is all recorded you know over the past you know the past six months so right when we were going through so many different things in all over the world so we unpacked 
the the issues at hand, but we also then learned about some of the tools that can be used. And from there, we actually got to speak with people who are doing some of that work in a variety of fields and organizations. So it's going to be really exciting to have a trip down memory lane and reminisce on some of the key things that we've taken away from this series. Let's go. Let's go. <laughs> so I, I, look, I, I could not have thought of anyone else other than Professor Soheri Nayatullah to be the first guest and open up Futurecast. After all, everything that I know, I've learned from him and being the, the all-time best futurist and the UNESCO Chair of Future Studies, I don't think there would be anyone else that could give us the gravitas and credibility that Futurecast is something of value. And uh, I mean, Soheo is, is a well of wisdom. He said so many things. He, he's so expansive in his words and, and in his imagination. But what, what, really, what really caught my attention, what really pulled a cord uh, in my heart was the fact that uh, he was telling us about the importance of those creative minorities, those minorities able to drive change, which is something that he, he also referred to uh, Arnold, uh, Arnold Toynbee, who is a, a, very, a very famous uh, macro historian and to a degree a futurist as well. And what Toynbee says is that this creative minority is one that responds to the challenges of the environment, the big challenges that we have here. But we can't only depend on the minorities. We also need the majorities. And what is also super interesting is that on the final article of this series, we, I mentioned about uh, Professor Damon Santola, who conducted a study about changing public opinion. And uh, we, you actually don't need 50% plus one to change how a society thinks, how an organization operates, how, you know, uh, uh, to change our frames of reference. You actually only need 25% of a noisy minority making, you know, giving their voice to something to then ignite change. So if uh, all it takes is 25%, I can't wait to see this creative minority rising to the challenge and making enough noise for uh, the present to start changing right now. So the problem becomes planetary. And if you read Arnold Toynbee, he talked about every time there's a civilizational challenge, there's always a creative minority that innovates to meet that challenge. If they fail, you get a type of uh, autocratic totalitarian systems because they reinforce the past. The past doesn't work. Everyone's seen that. But the move to innovation and novelty, whether it's more well-being, more trust, working from home, different ways from working, less travel, whatever that might be, that's not reinforced, we stay in imitation, and thus innovation disappears. So moving on to episode three, we were lucky enough to speak with Andrea Martins, who is the CEO of ADMA and a top 50 CMO generally, and she's had an amazing career across various organizations. And we're just, we were so excited to hear from somebody who is well known in the Australian space. And we got to speak about the changing role of the consumer, about digital acceleration during the COVID period, and just hear her thoughts about strategic foresight and her interest in, in applying that to some of the organisations that she's actually worked with. Now, one of the things that Andrea is super passionate about, which just permeated the whole episode, 
is the mental health and the mental health of people in marketing and at work in general. So she talked about why we need to double down on these sort of initiatives as we move into this new future, particularly in these uncertain COVID times. And she sort of discussed the role that mental health and resilience plays in the future of our industry. So let's hear from Andrea. For any, every organisation, mental health is going to be an ongoing focus from my perspective. Um, if we think there was a, a study released recently from Allianz and said that 80% of Australian workers want workplaces to double down on mental health initiatives and only one in four feel that their employers actually take mental health concerns as seriously as they do physical illness. Now that's that's a huge disconnect. What we also know is that our industry has always been widely reported as one of the most susceptible to stress and particularly during this period. So 20% more likely than the general population to suffer mental health issues. So ADMA, we are here, our role is to be here for the industry. So you know, from our perspective, we don't deal with this now. It's going to have a huge impact. Um, negatively on organize on organizations and also the wider community. And then we went all the way from Australia to the United States of America to speak with Mark Johnson. And Mark is one of the co-founders of InnoSight, one of the founding partners who have worked hand-to-hand with uh, Clay Christensen, who, as we all know, is, uh, is the person who coined the term disruptive innovation. So when it comes to innovation, when, when it comes to planting seeds into the future, InnoSight is, is at the very forefront of it. And Mark, as well, having recently authored uh, Future Back, his latest book, is someone that has a lot of knowledge and experience about all that, and someone who, who could make it super, super practical for us. And uh, one, of, one of his key points was about the need to create space for the future. We're always so busy and so distracted with the things that are right in front of us and sometimes daydreaming about possibilities but never really making a concerted effort about that. In our industry, for instance, we have so many different conferences and occasions when we'll talk about the future, we'll make predictions or you have some publishers creating reports about future trends and and future this and future that. But who's actually putting some time to decide the actions that they will be taking to, in fact, define the future, not only uh, make conjectures about it. So, uh, I mean, I, I would love to see one, at least one event where marketers allocate 10% of their time, because that's what Mark suggests, that we should at least have 10% to dedicate to thinking about the future, to thinking not just in terms about the rules of the game, but what is the game that we want to be playing? And this is my invitation and my provocation to the entire industry. What is the game that we want to be playing moving forward? And can we create an occasion, an event, a space in time where we can all allow for 10% of our time, of our efforts and our resources to be dedicated to that, I think would be a time well spent and well worth our whiles. You know, I, I talk quite a bit about this in that, you know, 90% of what we're going to do is going to be in the moment, uh, if you will, or present forward planning in the shorter term. Um, you know, it's it's the discipline of operating and executing the business. You know, we have to be in the moment. You need to be, you know, thinking about the competition 
uh, along with, you know, certainly focused on what your customers are, are wanting you to do and, you know, how do you do everything to continue to drive efficiencies and sustain. But I think the problem is we've become so focused on just that, that we don't really seriously consider planting those seeds for the future, you know, more than just, uh, I think, a little bit going through the motion, at least in many corporations I work with where, yeah, we'll give these different sort of long-term projects, but they're not really taken seriously because they're not embedded in the vision. So that's how I would reconcile that, Sergio, is that you need both. And 90%, 80 to 90% can be in the moment, but you need that 10% for future, future back. We were so excited to speak with Saul Beatme de Chestonier, who is the Chief Marketing Officer at the United Nations World Food Program. So it was pretty incredible to speak to Saul in uh, in the moments after his organization had actually won the Nobel Prize for Peace, which is an incredible honor. And we got to speak to Sol a little bit about his career and his trajectory. So he moved from agency land and from being a bit of a star in that creative industry space into an organization like UNWFP. So we were really interested in learning from him how he transferred those creative skills into such a different role. He also spoke about how his understanding of the future has fundamentally changed at working, working where he is. And it's been really reframed and humbled. And he said that being exposed to some of the inequalities of how so many people live and seeing all the work that needs to be done to address the underlying social and geopolitical issues that cause world hunger has really changed how he really views the future. And it was incredible to see how he uses those skills as an established marketer and creative to really drive change in a completely new way. I think you'll you'll hear this from people who've shifted from a more commercially orientated world to one where you're working in the humanitarian development space is that there is an enormous sense of of gratefulness. You realize quite how lucky you are um, because the people you know we we serve, the people we're helping, have very you know are, are in extremely difficult situations, and part of our job is to give them hope and to give them a sense of that the future, you know, tomorrow's going to be better than today. And often that isn't the case. I, I, this word is so overused, but it's been an incredibly humbling experience. And you realize that at a very basic level is most people don't have a future in any, most people don't have a kind of hope for, for, for that future. And the window through which I've looked, you know, what does the future look like has, has fundamentally changed. But at the same time, there's you look at what an organisation like mine can do, and you realise that actually, if, if if you can, if you can pivot, if you can adapt, and apply the kind of capabilities that we have to not just feeding people but also addressing those underlying causes, then the future looks much brighter. The future looks much brighter, I think. But it's it's mm-hmm. been it's it, the humility is whilst it's overused as a word for me is the how I feel about about how to think about the future now. 
Next, we spoke with Sherilyn Shackle, who is the CEO of the Marketing Academy. And we had such a fun conversation with Sherilyn. So she is really passionate about leadership and about creating leaders from marketers that can go on to become CEOs and really make great change. So we spoke about lots of different qualities of leadership and we talk about the importance of you know, being diverse in leadership and sharing different kinds of views, people of all ages, genders, um, cultural backgrounds, all these sorts of things uh, were woven into our conversation with Sherilyn. So she also discussed what leadership qualities actually make a great marketer. And she said that we have the innate ability to blend creativity and communication with data. So basically blending the art with the science and using our power to influence to actually make a difference as a leader. So we have all of those qualities and we can go on to make great CEOs. So it was amazing to hear her background and her ideas about what marketers can really do to tap into those innate qualities to become great leaders. I am deeply passionate about the sheer breadth of ability and capability within within marketers um, as a really special place to breed CEO talent, you know, top, top, top leadership talent. In my view, the the so on the fellowship um, program, which we run for that's for client side CMOs only. We run it in EMEA and the US. I haven't launched it in Australia yet, but bear with, it's going to come, <laughs> um, that we focus on enabling the CMOs to step up to become CEOs. That's what that learning program is all about. There's no marketing content whatsoever. And the reason why we're so passionate about uh, raising up the leadership talent within marketing is because marketers have the most special combination of capability that I've seen in any other function or industry. Because inherently, marketers are phenomenal communicators, which is kind of one of the main leadership traits that you need, right? You need to be a fantastic communicator. You need to have a creative mindset at the same time as having a mind that can grapple with data. And the combination of those two is really hard to find, but exists far more in marketers than any other function. That beautiful place where art and science meets inside your brain, great marketers have that as naturally innate way of thinking. You know, the ability to blend art and science, creativity and numbers and figures. And, you know, two totally different sides of the brain, they say. But, you know, the the best marketers have the ability to straddle both. We are braver, courageous. We, We constantly live in white water. Right. We're Mm. constantly in the rapids. The shit's hitting the fan all the bloody time. We've got to respond to things immediately. We've got to pivot quickly. We have to be adaptable, um, flexible. We have to be open to change. Here's the thing. We have to listen. We're really fabulous listeners because we have to listen to the customer, whether we're in B2B or B2C, the customer the client, and so it's the same in agencies, right? The agencies have to listen to their clients. So the ability to listen is also right up there from a leadership 
trait perspective and the ability to influence. That's what we do. Marketing, media and advertising is in the leadership business. If our definition of a leader is that 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 person who has influence over someone else, then what other industry or function is there that has more influence than marketing, media and advertising? So we're in the leadership business. So marketers, for me, provide the best leadership potential than any other function in a business. Uh, and uh, on episode 10, we had Bridget Angler, a pracademic, the practical academic. Bridget is someone who intersects academia and the consulting world as well, and is someone that is incredibly knowledgeable about uh, design, foresight, marketing, communications, and so much more. I remember seeing Bridget speak maybe, I think like four or five years ago. Uh, on the same event was an AGDA event, the Association of Graphic Designers of Australia. And in that occasion, I think was one of the first few times when I presented Urban Brand Utility. And uh, she was giving a talk about the future. And straight after that, she came to me and said, we should talk. And that was, was a great opportunity to start a relationship with someone so knowledgeable. And uh, Bridget, made a really good point during her uh, uh, during, uh, well during during the, the podcast interview but also on the article in saying that uh, foresight is not something to only dream about that foresight is a lot more than that that foresight is a contact sport that you need to get involved you need to get dirty you need to roll up your sleeves you need to try different frameworks and avoid being enamored by one or two just because you like it or just because it works works for you or it worked to a client but may not be the case for others. So uh, it's, I think it's very telling in the sense that uh, foresight and you know, uh, the practice of futures thinking is not something for, uh, uh, for, you know, for the ivory tower type of academic, but for someone who's truly there out in the world and experiencing reality uh, as opposed to only having dreams about it. And uh, it's, it's also why it's so important that futurists, they truly are generalists. They are people with a great sense of understanding about their surroundings and uh, able to uh, make connections that are often unseen to then th synthesize what the possibilities can be and how to protect ourselves from the risks, but also how to embrace the biggest opportunities. And this is then that, that difficult we have with, with big data and the sense that we can get all of that historical stuff and it's going to tell us what we need to do next. Uh, the, the issue with futures is that they don't exist and it's up to us to create them. So if we want something different, we have to imagine that rather than working from just what has gone before. And that's not to downplay the role of, of learning from history. Uh, we have had decline of civilizations. We've had shifts in values for eons. Uh, and we, we can learn from that, but it doesn't mean that we have to just have history repeat itself over and over again. Mm. Yeah, having some control of that, of the future, I think is really an important thing to talk about. Um, if I knew, the, the thing that really has solidified for me how short-lived trends can be is being on TikTok this year, because obviously that has been one of my hobbies during during COVID. <laughs> and it just made me realise how short-lived a trend can really be, because something that was everywhere at one moment has just disappeared and you forget about it completely. So I actually wanted to change gears slightly. And I'm really interested, obviously, because you have experience and expertise in design. 
And I'm really curious what you think about, you know, you mentioned before human-centered design. Um, and I'm, I'm curious what you think about, you know, we hear these terms like human-centered design or environment-centered design, but how do you think these concepts translate into practice and how do you envision the future of design? Design is, is a practice that has the capacity to bring about change. And that it does that when we change behaviour, when we change responses, when we encourage people to do things differently, engage with products and services differently. In fact, just the way we create stuff. One of the, the challenges with, with all of that is that design is more than form and function um, and, and, and particularly getting caught up with just the aesthetics of form and function. Design has a significant impact on, on the world around us in terms of uh, the energy and resources used and the materials used and the proliferation of consumer culture and materiality. Having said all of that, design has always really meant to be about problem solving, whether it be for people or organisations or, or other you know, sentient and non-sentient life forms. Um, and so all of the, the, the phrases around design thinking and human-centred design or beyond human-centred design or trans whatever the next buzzword is, sometimes they are just buzzwords. Uh, that is not, however, to diminish the practice of design and the study of design as a means of, of supporting better lifespans, of supporting better living, of supporting ecosystems. Um, so there is a tension inherent in design that it has been mostly linked with consumer culture and, and the cons ongoing consumption of things, and I mean things, uh, whereas design itself was that that's not really the origins of it. And if you look at, and I don't want to bombard you with theory, but you look at work that looks at it might be Cannon's work around the four orders of design and how design has evolved from communication and symbols through to systems levels. It's probably always existed. It's just that we've never kind of codified it like that. Uh, mm -hmm. So the, the shift from human-centered design to beyond human-centered design is an acknowledgement that even when we talk about human-centered design, we're actually cutting things things out of the, the the context. So when we design for people, we're potentially focusing on those people and not other people. Um, you know, good design should take all of that into account. Content Brain specialises in content creation across a diverse range of topics for many industry sectors. If you need help with content development for your blogs, thought leadership, white papers, video, podcasts, or special projects, talk to the team at Content Brains. You'll find links in our episode notes. On episode 12, we spoke with Yasmina Pinto, head of brand at AGL. And AGL, like many other energy uh, companies, is going through a massive transition, a massive transformation, which is the nature of the category as well. AGL recently entered the telco market. And uh, interestingly enough, Telstra, who is a telecommunications company, entered the energy market. So all the boundaries are blurring. And in that sense, once again, experimentation is something that uh, Yasmina I mentioned and when she talked about enterprise branding and how how to organize the actions of uh, AGL under 
a, a different type of wrapper, which which was the AGL Next descriptor as something to organize some of the innovative uh, efforts that the company is bringing to market. And some of those efforts that the company is only uh, uh, prototyping right now to bring to market in five to 10 to 15 years with uh, the future and te future tech and business division. I found that quite interesting and quite uh, refreshing as well, because uh, we often think about the, the incumbents as being slow to innovate, which yes, it can be the case, but they do innovate. And when they do, everything changes. And uh, I, I, I can already feel some of these tectonic shifts happening in the energy sector and beyond since everything is so connected now. And that was, that was a fascinating talk for those reasons. Want to involve your customers and get their feedback and learn what's working and what's not working. So having a convention with which to do that can be very helpful. And look, there will be times and there are times that we might want to create a completely separate brand. We might not want to associate things with AGL. So there, there's, there are exceptions. This is not the only solution. It's just a way of talking about some of the stuff where customers do give us permission to play and they they enjoy being a part of it. They enjoy co-creating with us as well. I think that's important that there's a relationship with the customer where they're part of that design and feedback process. In a great follow-up to the episode with Yasmina, we actually spoke with Narike Ganyao, who is the general manager of strategy at Powerlink Queensland. And much like the previous episode, you know, we really were diving into those paradigm shifts that were happening in the energy space. And it was really interesting to hear from Norika about why she chose to you to delve into future studies as, you know, with her background in strategy, what actually drew her to that discipline. And she really spoke about creativity and about the need to connect purpose to your soul. And it was a really interesting perspective that she had. And then also about how to engage an organization into a completely new way of thinking and really engaging them to see see the future in a different way um, rather than just focusing on the problems in the present. So it was um, it was really amazing to see how somebody in an organization actually uses those tools, works with a futurist and goes beyond just seeing the challenges to actually imagining new futures. In the last while, we've seen a few things uh shift that. So we've had decarbonisation, as you would know, um, with all the renewables coming onto the grid and, and rooftop um, solar and that kind of thing on people's houses. So that's really made a big difference in terms of the dynamics of the system and in terms of um, just the technical challenges that we're facing. Uh, with that, when I, as I mentioned, the rooftop power, we've seen decentralisation happening. So while historically all the power was like I mentioned before it was like a relay race it was the generators generated the power they handed us the baton we as transmission took it up we handed it over to the retailers they took it they handed it over to the true communities it is really changing into something that's more like a synchronized swimming so that's quite a significant change for an industry to do and I think that's happening in a lot of industries by the way just because of things like connectivity etc so because there are so many uncertainties and changes that you really can't predict anymore and because the people in the industry 
um, aren't used to a fast-paced, fast-changing industry, like, for instance, the computer industry. We needed something that would really help us think outside the box, really leave leave our our thinking and the, the things that have been our truth for the past how many years, leave it behind and, and be able to imagine what it could look like and sort of look past the challenges that we're facing and look into how that how we can create new and better futures for for communities overall out of that. The next guest we had on the show was Sophia Bazil, who is an independent foresight researcher. She's a first-generation Haitian-American who has lived all over the world, and she is doing some amazing work um, about Black futures research, and her passion is democratising futures literacy, so making it something that is more accessible to people everywhere. In this part of the series, we were really talking about narrative foresight and talking about how narratives shape how we see the world. And she spoke about the importance of telling your own story and, you know, particularly as a a black foresight researcher. So controlling the narrative, um, she talks about how that can actually help to address some structural inequalities. Um, So instead of promoting harmful stereotypes, how actually controlling your own narrative can cultivate empathy. And she really spoke about why brands need to get on board with this. Well, having ownership over the narrative is so important for the future because basically, you know, we can use numbers all we want and data, data, data. But what about this analysis paralysis, which sees us replaying the same situations over and over? and some groups are not able to advance within the systems that we have, there is definitely a place for narratives and storytelling and ethnographic futures to really be able to cultivate empathy amongst different populations and better bring the collective into more alignment, essentially. So having ownership over the narrative, only we can tell our stories in that. We've seen it go really, really wrong when brands don't have any Black people on their leadership teams or in their boardrooms and meetings. And then they go and they do something really so, (laughs) so asinine and inane. (laughs) And then they wonder why they face backlash. Like if you had somebody black in there, you would have had a voice that could tell you, nah, you know, actually my people are not going to like that. Okay. So this is where you go wrong. It's same goes for women. Same goes for other marginalized groups. It's really about have being inclusive. It's not about dominating the narrative completely, but since we have not been provided those spaces, we've had to create our own. Like I did mention Twitter, the guy Jack Dorsey didn't even know black Twitter existed and black Twitter is huge. If you want to know anything that is happening in the political, social, I don't know, economic discourse around black people, amazing memes, black people are hilarious, first of all. I mean, um, in all my worldly travels, let me tell you something, from music to art, to fashion, like people around the world associate American, U.S. culture specifically with Black people. Like, U.S. culture is Black culture. It really is. So I guess taking ownership of the narrative is that people have loved Black culture and they like to adopt certain things and use it and monetize it. But do they, their actions don't necessarily show that they love Black people. So we need to be able to tell our own stories 
right? We can tell them very authentically and genuinely. And I think that's a great way to kind of, yeah, show the accuracy and the nuance of the Black experience. We're not a monolith. And uh, then we had the joy of speaking with Dr. Jared Cooney Horvath, who is a very good friend of mine and possibly one of the brightest people I've ever met in my life. Jared is a Harvard neuroscientist who specialized in the neuroscience of learning. Uh, I think he opened more than 150 craniums during his uh, training, and uh, he shared so many wonderful stories. But in this episode, well, actually in the two episodes that we spoke with him, there was so much content we had to break it into. Uh, I think we, we were able to build a really nice bridge from what Sophia said, which is you know more about this social cultural type of narrative, to one that is a lot more universal. The the narrative that happens inside our minds, inside our brains, and Jared deconstructed the whole process in such a magnificent way that you know bringing all of that complexity to a to, to you know in like in really easy layman's terms. Uh, and I, I, it's very hard, you know, to choose uh, between your your kids, you know, who's your favorite. But uh, this episode had a very sweet spot in my heart and my mind, especially. But I think that one thing that Jared said that uh, was, uh, uh, I mean, was super. I mean, it, it, it wasn't wasn't anything new, but it only reaffirmed how important and how relevant it is for us to be able to control our thoughts, to be aware of, of the things that we think, to be aware of the things that we feel, because in the end of the day, the narratives that we tell ourselves become the realities that we start to live. And he gave several examples of that. I mean, he even told about uh, the blue color that uh, in, 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 in the ancient world, Word, you know, besides Egypt, where they had lapis lazuli, blue wasn't a color. People would look at the at the sky and not see blue, because there was no other there was no other representation, no other narrative involving the color blue. So uh, I guess it's it's also a really nice connection to some of the things that the philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein would say that the limits of my language are the limits of my word, and uh, for all of us, in, as being part of this series we have certainly been able to expand our vocabularies and understanding of so many things which uh, should only help us to enrich our words and futures. So when we ask, do our stories drive our actions? If our actions are predicated upon the world we are living in, the world we are perceiving, what it is we're seeing, smelling, tasting, then by definition, (laughs) our stories by and large drive our actions. They don't influence our actions they determine what world our actions exist in. So now you start to recognize, yeah, it, it was for a while, we thought it was just kind of cute. Like, yeah, stories are important, ha, 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 but really, it doesn't really matter. And the more we do our research, we start to realize the way the brain is organized is, and just to simplify this, and I, I hate to harp on this point, but we call it top-down processing, is the brain doesn't really take in the world. It does, it gets signals in. But at any one time, the brain is pushing back. And we call this top down where it's saying, hey, you're looking at a dog. Well, dog should look like this. And it pushes back and all the cells in the back of your eye can start to shift their positions. So you see it the way you think it should be. That power of top down processing guides everything. So every decision you make, every choice, every action, every behavior you undertake is going to somehow be driven by whatever story you have active, which then leads to the important point the hell stories are we using? Because if you're using a wonky story, you're going to be doing some wonky stuff. Not going to necessarily be wrong. It's just going to be 
disaligned with other people's stories. And now where do we go from here? And on episode 17, we spoke with Puresh Chowdhury. Puresh is uh, one of the most uh, renowned futurists in the world. Uh, she had so many accomplishments. And if you're curious, just go to her Wikipedia entry and you will read one of the most impressive CVs I've ever seen in my life. And uh, Puresh made a really interesting point about... Uh, uh, how we can move beyond the social responsibility to focus on value creation. And she said, uh, uh, she's, you know, she mentioned that in the context, context of brands and that, you know, paying taxes is a, is a good thing, is the right thing, is the minimum necessary. And be, uh, after that, brands, you know, start doing things that are able to create that impression of a social license to operate. So we are there doing what we need to do. So society appreciates our role beyond the, the transactional role that you know any given company brand will have so we are we are accepted in those communities and i remember many years ago uh, with a Walmart, that was the case. They were, you know, they, they were using that those practices of dumping, where they would dump prices to the lowest, uh, uh, to the bottom uh, of, uh, of, of, you know, the price of price ranges, and uh, take many businesses out of business. And that was a huge compromise with their social license. And different communities in America started to reject Walmart. And uh, Puresh's point is one that expands on that, not only from a business perspective, but also a societal. Perspective perspective because when she talks about the creation of value and particularly through content through media through brands and advertising it's also about how do we value the things that are dear for us and looking at how polarized society has become become over the last five seven years what we see are in one in one end of the spectrum you have uh, fundamentalists people who are you know uh, 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 all about their fundamentals and they need to live by those fundamentals and they are inflexible to everything and anything else. And then at the, at the other end of the spectrum, you have the multiculturalists where uh, multiculturalism is a beautiful thing and we should all live in this kaleidoscope and uh, mixes and matches of different perspectives, which is wonderful, right? But it doesn't mean that by only having a hodgepodge all differences will make a difference. And I think that this is the value of our point because if you are different, that's a good thing. I can accept that. I can tolerate that. I can respect that. But if your difference is not making a difference, then what is your point? And uh, it's it, which, is, which is a really important thing for brands because in this day and age, brands can no longer just be sitting on the wall like Humpty Dumpty waiting for the fall. You, you, you need to take sides. Either you're pro, you're for, or you're building bridges. Either, either you are fundamental about the values that you preach, either you are combining and trying to adapt things in the way you are, or you are a more cosmopolitan type of brand and you're building bridges between fundamental values and those of multicultural uh, uh, perspectives as well. Things are moving beyond being social, socially responsible. They are moving towards what is the value that you're creating. So a lot of things are moving. So for instance, if you look at, I mean, Coke did a very smart thing. Coke's uh, brand value proposition revolves around happiness. So much of their, much of their, many of their commercials are actually revolving. So when happiness is a point of anchoring in, uh, consumer behavior, they also really understand uh, if the brand values sort of their product come down, what is the other way of engaging the community? So they took the cultural route, 
which was basically having Coke Studio in Pakistan and India in general. I think there's one in Turkey also. So that became really like their way of really uh, moving into another industry, which is your artist community. And when you see those sort of relationships happening, uh, with major brands, uh, you sort of see like things are moving fast and there are a few corporate sectors who still have a lot of catching up to do. from social responsibility to more of a value thing and, and for corporate sector to have more of a purpose. What set of values will they inculcate in the society or what would they encourage in a society? So it was at this point of the series that we spoke with Joe White, who's the marketing director at TAC and also just a well-known strategic marketing executive who previously worked at the City of Melbourne and many other amazing Australian brands. So at this point of the series, we sort of went from analysing the problems that we foresaw that were happening in the industry to actually sort of offering some solutions. So Sergio had written about a concept called urban brand utility, which I highly recommend that you read about on the Marketing Mag website. And so at this point, we actually spoke to Joe about this idea as a potential solution to some of the problems that we have. And she really unpacked that from her perspective as somebody who's worked, you know, with city planners, with with many different parts of the industry. And she sort of was talked about bringing together the community aspect with the brand or the commercial aspect of the industry to build an overall better future. And she really put an emphasis on how in order to achieve better futures, we need to collaborate better and create new solutions. So she really touched on her own experience as a marketer at the city of Melbourne and at TAC, but also more generally, she put on her strategic hat and just really unpacked what urban brand utility could mean for future cities. I think uh, when Sergio first talked to me about this, my excitement level was skyrocketing and uh, and I went back to my colleagues at the city of Melbourne in the planning area and and had a good conversation about, well, how might we do this differently? And I think if we come at it um, from our own disciplines, a commercial discipline or a community discipline, then we, we run the risk of missing the bigger opportunity. And, and what excites me about the concept and bringing it to life is in a, in a world where we talk a lot about collaboration, we really don't, um, we don't really collaborate. We, we get in a room, but we hold on to our our legacy principles and thought processes and that makes it really difficult to imagine something new and I think what what Sergio is touching on with the urban uh, brand utility is a new concept and it requires almost that collaboration and commitment at the beginning that we'll we'll work together to find uh, a new way of thinking about things and I think when the commercial practitioners sit down, we lose the community utility. And when the community planners sit down, all they see is, is advertising and visual pollution. And I think, you know, COVID more than any other time has brought into focus that what you can communicate for advertising, you can communicate for public education. And we need to be together at the beginning of the process and really step into each other's shoes and see the benefits of, of every aspect and create something completely different because it's it's the councils and the governments who set the policy frameworks that allow the different uh, planning scheme amendments and what will happen in different public um, realm spaces that we need to have some uh, reference to as commercial 
marketers, but as commercial marketers, we have to understand that the people that we're trying to sell products and services to or build awareness for um, also need to get about uh, doing what they're trying to do in their lunch hour or getting to work in, in the best way possible. And whether that's, you know, from a TAC perspective, that's around making sure that people are looking at roads and looking up and not looking at mobile devices from a from a city of Melbourne point of view, it might be, you know, it's a pollen count that you need to be aware of or it's a pollution or it's a, you know, a red zone, a hot zone in terms of COVID. But these these messages need to coexist for the benefit of the audience rather than the person who's um, communicating messages. So it's a really, really interesting way to, to bring it to life, I think. Last but not least... We had we went all the way from Australia to Rotterdam to speak with Dan Rusgard. Dan is an artist, innovator, and founder of Studio Rusgard, and uh, it, it is a it is a design studio that is invested in designing the landscapes of the future. Dan is the creator of uh, artifacts such as this the, the smog-free vacuum cleaner, uh, the Sterinite path of of uh, Van Gogh, where he used uh, uh, the active principles from bioluminescence and he puts on the ground creating paths uh, for for uh, uh, sorry creating bike paths that uh, light up uh, that are lit up at night uh, from all the all the sunlight that is absorbed during the day and so many other things that he has been creating and most recently with uh, his project uh, grow and urban sun using light recipes to both accelerate the growth of crops as well as uh, exterminate the coronavirus uh, 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 from uh, from public spaces, allowing people to congregate again. And I think that uh, you know, besides the many accomplishments of Dan, uh, the way that he's been doing all of that, the way that he's been achieving all of that, has been through sheer imagination. And this is this is his secret sauce, and uh, something that we, we had explored uh, at uh, you know a degree of length with him. But I feel that uh, Futurecast was also our, our very way of reimagining the marketing world, provoking people's curiosity and hopefully inspire everyone to making it better. And uh, it's, it's an episode that I hope that will inject that degree of hope and uh, a sense of urgency as well. After all, we have already entered the decade of action, and I am so pleased that Futurecast has been one of these little dots on the timeline that may define the many generations to come. If we cannot imagine a better world, we will also not be able to create it, right? <laughs> so that's really important, that we first, we, we have to wonder, we have to think, we have to imagine. And only then we can construct, engineer, prototype, and, 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 and make it happen, realize it. And so I think that that's the power of, of, of design and the power of art. How do we want a future world to look like? And what are, what are the lessons we can learn from nature? And how can we you know, apply that in our daily lives to improve it? And um, I miss that in the world of today. We're somehow scared about the future. We're angry. Uh, or we're, we're, we just ignore it, right? We don't really talk about the future that much anymore uh, when you read the news. And um, yeah, so so maybe part of my job is is to trigger that curiosity and, and the projects, uh, the things we do are driven by that. Yeah, so that's really important. So Sergio, that was 
so wonderful to look back on all of the things that we learned during this season and to reminisce about some of the incredible takeaways that we got from guests from all over the world, from all different fields, disciplines. I mean, there was so much, there was so much to learn. So I guess looking forward, I want to throw to you as somebody who who brought this series and this idea to life, um, you know, you you wanted to create a conversation about the future and you wanted us, you know, to, to break the cycle of short-termism and business as usual and to really take this moment in time to pause and to look forward and to open new conversations in the industry and also make them a little bit more nuanced and a little bit more dynamic, I suppose. So if Futurecast is a brand, if you think of it like a brand that we launched, how do you feel about the future of this brand and where do you see it developing and growing next? Well, I feel very hopeful, Jess. I feel very hopeful that this brand is one that might be able to set a new baseline to, to the industry and uh, everyone that plays a role in this industry. But I think that it's, it would be good to go back a few steps. And one of the reasons that motivated me to do that, and I think is the reason that motivates anyone to create something, is because you, you felt annoyed about something, annoyed enough to stop having to live with it and start mm-hmm. dealing with it. And my annoyance was in relation to the many trends reports that are being produced by the industry. The future of this, the future of that, the future of something else. And in the end of the day, you know, they, they don't represent anything. Uh, there are so many uh, uh, serious research papers that don't mean anything, uh, where so much effort's put, but once again, because of the people authoring those reports, they are not the ones designing the future that th- those reports talk about. Where's the validity of all that? Uh, Particularly during during this time of COVID and in the very beginning when we actually started the series when there was so much uncertainty, uh, so many things changing for all of us in so many ways, I was I was I was a bit lost to be to be quite frank and uh, future futurecast gave me this sense of direction also gave me an anchor where I could uh, uh, ground myself and uh, think more uh, uh, more effectively about the long term and brand brand building is all about the long term so if if futurecast as is a brand uh, let's hope that in the next six months we may start seeing some results some fruits flourishing from this beautiful initiative. And uh, on that note, what I would like to say is a big thank you to you, to all the team from Marketing Mag, Niche, mm-hmm. Content Brains, and everyone who's been listening to us and engaging with us on the many channels where we have been uh, uh, exploring uh, these this interesting ideas, not only via podcasts, written articles, as well as uh, uh, video interviews, where we have another host, another incredible cohort of guests that I highly recommend everyone to uh, check it out. So as a brand, if there is a brand for the future, Futurecast definitely is one of those, is a brand that questions, is a a brand that doesn't take assumptions as they are, is a brand that is curious, and is a brand that is, uh, is what it says. It's not a brand that is only 
giving a talk, it's actually walking. And uh, we have exposed ourselves to that. And uh, let's hear what the industry have to say. Please come and crucify our ideas or glorify them. <laughs> or, but ju just don't be neutral to them. Just don't be uh, blasé about these things because they are very important. They are the things that we keep talking about. We are always talking about new ideas. And what research says is that the ability to generate breakthrough innovation with new ideas has become increasingly more expensive. And it's taking a lot of time as well. Uh, this crisis is showing that in a big way, even though, you know, especially when it comes to energy, even though uh, uh, so the prices of so solar energy are rock bottom, we still don't have the solution to make this uh, you know, into, a, into a large scale type of implementation, which is uh, uh, something that uh, I remember from our, our chat with Dan, mm -hmm. when uh, we talked about all, all of his different uh, art pieces and why they are not in every single capital city in the world. Why not? And that, this has to do with the involvement that we all need to have as a society. And if there is one thing that we are all in it together, is not the pandemic, is our ability to redefine the future. So uh, let's hope that Futurecast gives enough ammunition so people can uh, use it for the best. Well, on that note, thank you so much, Sergio Brodsky, for creating this series and for being courageous um, in taking that initiative and opening that conversation. And thank you to everyone who has been listening to Futurecast. Futurecast is the Marketing Mag podcast series brought to you by Content Brains and presented by Marketing Mag. Futurecast is produced by Joanne Davies, Head of Content Brains and Publisher of Marketing Mag. And Jazz Giuliani, Editor of Content Brains and Marketing Mag. Our executive producer is Sergio Brodsky with original music and audio production by Sam Boone. If you want further details on our podcast or our guests, please visit the episode notes in this podcast. Remember to subscribe to Futurecast so you never miss an episode.